Basically what it is is you just kind of allow your kids to do what they want to do, um, and you're there to kind of supervise, but that means you, you never correct, but you always advise in the process. Um, the, it's more seen like the parent and child as like partners, right, in this rearing, uh, if you can call it rearing at all, um, and, and very much less of a parent and a child. And I don't really, you know, talk about this method. These people who choose to use this method in a way to, like, prop them up and mock them and make fun of them um, because I think there's good intentions in that. I think there's good things. Actually, I could probably even learn from that. Um, but it is all in response to a poor parenting. It's all in response from seeing parenting displayed and modeled in a very wrong way. It's a warped understanding of what discipline actually is. But the Bible is chock full of wisdom on this subject, and I want to read just a few passages from the book of wisdom, um, Proverbs. And uh, so I'll just hand-picked ones here, just a few for us. Proverbs thirteen twenty four: Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs twenty two fifteen, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs twenty nine seventeen, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give the light to your heart. So interestingly, the Bible not only condones discipline, but it seems to expect it of us. But what is Discipline. When we say discipline, okay, so unpack exactly what you mean. Define it for me. The most uh, basic uh, definition of discipline, if you look up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is this. uh, The practice of training. The practice of training. Biblically, um, and I read in a commentary this week, um, that Ken Hughes kind of lays out three different modes or ways that God disciplines in the Bible. The first is correction. Uh, Second would be prevention. And then the third, instruction. And we might be familiar with the first two pretty well. Um, you know, if, if, if I tell my son to do something and he says no, then I discipline him because you don't respond to me that way. If he's about to run out in the road and I stop him from doing so, that would be prevention, right? I'm, I'm disciplining him say, you do not run out in that road because you'll die. But the third one, um, you know, instruction, we may not be as familiar with, um, you know, at best, we um, may see um, little glints of it. Um, at worst, we, um, we, it's completely unwitnessed, you know, in our culture or maybe even, even in our own homes. But um, to give an example, the story of Job in the Bible. Uh, Job was an upright man before God. Um, sinless even, the Bible says. Um, and he had his whole world stripped out from under him. And it was his foolish friends who gave him this unwise counsel to say, Job, just repent. There's got to be something in your life to repent of, say you're sorry, God will remove all these things from your life. But Job didn't need correction or prevention from anything in this moment, but Job needed instruction on something. There was, even in his wisdom and his godliness, he still didn't have a full view of God. But at the end of the story, we see that what he understood about God became grander. Even what he thought he knew about God was displayed in a a magnified way. 
God's wisdom and his counsel and his sovereignty and his love for him loomed larger in Job's life. God was instructing him and informing him on who he was. And we tend not to know what discipline is for in the midst of it, right? And that's exactly what was happening to Hebrews here, the, the hearers, um, the Hebrew people. The authors call to keep on looking to Jesus in the midst of their persecution is how they are to endure through it. We read this um, verse last week, verse 3. Consider him, he says, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus faithfully walked the road to the cross. He endured the hardships, the scorning. He did it joyfully. He didn't allow the causes and the trials to allow his trust in God to waver. And so the author says, look to Christ. See his example. See that he has done what you ought to do and even more. He went to the cross and shed his blood for you. And he did it perfectly. Keeping the passion of Jesus in our hearts and our minds will keep us in a healthy perspective in life. It'll keep a healthy perspective on what's going on and around us as we walk through everything that we do in life. And then he says to the hearers in verse 4, he says this, in your struggle, so talking about Jesus' struggle, verse 3, and then verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So on one hand, he commends the Hebrews, saying, I recognize you're struggling against sin. Good job. Keep going. Keep fighting that fight. On the other hand, he kind of slaps him with a, a, a perspective on life. He says, look, I'm, I'm not illegitimizing you know, your struggle here, but I don't see any bodies laying around, so quit the drama. Okay? Don't be so quick to complain about your circumstances. Because you know, in the early church, in the inception of the church, right when, when Jesus ascended into heaven and then there was Pentecost and the inception of the church, many, many, many were tortured and killed and walked the, the, the path of Christ in the same way by giving their own blood. They were martyred. But this current era of, of the church, was, that was not the case for them under the rule of Emperor Claudius. Um, so they were not suffering to that point yet. And the author here is like, hey, hey, just slow down, reel it in a little bit, okay? Um, don't be so quick to complain. Have some perspective about this. I'm not you know, delegitimizing what you're going through, but let's just have some proper and healthy perspective. He's essentially saying that um, I acknowledge this. You're struggling with not particular sins, but these potential, these imminent sin that is upon you. Um, But let's just, let's take it one step at a time. See, the church, you know, obviously they wanted to keep this faith that they had, this new faith that they received, but um, they're questioning, is this, is this really what I wanted? You know, it is the struggle and the, um, the hostility that I'm receiving, um, is it really worth being a Christian? This is not what I asked for when I signed up to be a Christian. When I said I'm going to follow you guys, this isn't what I signed up for. So they're questioning this in their hearts and their minds. And the author knows this, and so he addresses it. What they needed to understand is that in these struggles, they were not only, these struggles were not only promised by Jesus himself, right? 
Jesus promised that this was going to happen. That you will face these struggles. You will face these trials and many others. But these trials and struggles are actually useful to them, the hearers. They're actually useful, but how? What do you mean that they were, they were useful? It's one thing to say that all things are, have meaning, right? But it's another thing to say that it's actually, it's, it's actually good for me. It's actually for my good. How are they useful? Well, it is true that in any trial, any circumstance, um, it can cause us to become distracted on Jesus, uh, of Jesus. Um, and we, our faith can waver. But it also... A trial and circumstance struggle intensifies our focus on Jesus. It intensifies our tenacity. It intensifies and strengthens our faith and walk in Christ. Both these things are possible, but it is useful to the Christian when the latter is displayed. Like a good father, God will train his children to endure through hard times, and that's why he allows us to go through them. So when our faith is tested... So that when it is, it will prove to be genuine in the end. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is the purpose. The person that puts their faith in Jesus puts on the whole armor of God so that they may stand against the schemes of the enemy, so they may stand against the evil day. And when they have done all to stand firm, Ephesians 6. To stand firm where they're at. So examine with me for a second. Do you arm yourself for the fight? Do you arm yourself for the battle that is happening? Are you proactive? Are you actively waging war against your circumstances, against the lies and the things that are thrown at you every single day? Or do you give in and say, this is, this is, this is just a pain in the butt, right? At the, at the best. Or this is... I don't think I can endure this. I don't think I can make it through. Are you arming yourself with the truth of God's word? Are you even in the fight? How will you endure to the end if you do not fight? I think scripture is clear that you will not. But God will make you a man or a woman who is laser focused on Christ. If you look to Christ in the midst of your circumstances, in the, in the very middle of your trials, if you keep your focus on Jesus, if you allow the things that are happening around you to intensify your focus on him and not become distracted, God will make you into a man or woman that is a bulwark of the faith. Unmoved, standing firm where you are planted. We have to learn to look to him. And the author knows this, and so he uses the word of God. How do we fight against the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy? The word of God. So he reminds them, he says, Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten, church, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wearied when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And speaking to these two parties here, right? To the ones who regard lightly or despise, as some uh, translations say it. Um, they become apathetic to what God is doing. And also to those who become weary by God's discipline. Who are crushed. Who are dismayed by his discipline. Speaking of these two, the first, 
There are those who know that God is at work, everything around them, right? They have a proper theology. They understand that God is in the midst of everything, but they don't allow God to actually do anything in their hearts. They don't ask the question, why? Why is God at work? How is he at work? What is he doing in this circumstance? These are the people that despise God's actual discipline. And they elevate, they prop up knowledge. This is most important to them. I understand what he's doing, I don't care why. It doesn't apply to me necessarily. And then there are also others who become wearied and broken and crushed in their God's discipline. These are people who, they adopt a woe is me mentality. And they're like waves on a sea tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine without any firm footing to stand upon. And they're crushed and they're dismayed because God would be so cruel to them. These are people who elevate feelings above everything else. And I mentioned Job a little bit earlier. In that story, uh, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, there's this passage, uh, this verse. It says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. And this verse, along with Proverbs 3, is a gentle correction to both parties there. It's a gentle correction to us because you are blessed when you are disciplined. You don't have to despise his discipline. You're blessed in and through it. It is for your good, Christian. You're cared for even when you're wounded. Even when you are hurting, God will heal you. He will do it for your good. The Lord disciplines you because he loves you. Proverbs 3. He chastises you because he calls you his own child. This word chastises, we don't really use that in our day-to-day language, right? And, and looking at it this week in, in the Greek, um, it's actually more appropriately translated whips. Whoa, hold up. Oh, my Bible. Whoa, hold up, right? Like, how can you square that? Like, God is a loving God who whips his children? Again, coming from our context and our culture, this is outright wrong. No way. Before you just dismiss me, right? These are not my words. This is the word of God. And we have to be able to square how God would use harsh discipline for the good, to bring good to his children. I think the first step in that is realizing, one, that we're in, we have the earthly bodies, right? Everything we understand about discipline on earth is through earthly lenses, through earthly examples, imperfect, false examples, at worst and at best, just very, very uh, limited examples on what discipline is. We first have to acknowledge that. But there is a paternal discipline, a godly paternal discipline that we do not always understand. It's this kind that will allow the hearers and Hebrews and us, when we grasp it, To endure to the end. It is this discipline that will either cause you to despise God, to be crushed by him, or to endure. It will produce one of those three. You will despise him for what he has done. You will be crushed by him. Or you will endure through what you are going through. Verse 7. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I think this is one of the the few verses in the ESV. I actually really like ESV translation. But um, and studying this week, I'm not a I'm not a Greek scholar by any means. But studying this week, I think this is one of the few verses that uh, ESV got it wrong on. And there are other translation. NIV is pretty good, I think. But more accurately translated says, "If you endure discipline, God is treating you as sons." The point being that we must endure. We have to walk through because it is God's discipline that will cause us to endure. We've covered that, right? God will discipline us in order to produce in us a godliness in order to endure all the way to the end. And if we make it to the end, we prove to be God's children, right? We prove to be God's sons and daughters, live with him for eternity. So therefore, we can deduce that God's discipline is what brings us to the end. It causes us to endure in life's troubles. Not only does the discipline prove our adoption, but a lack of discipline may prove the opposite. And this is why happiness is never the goal for the Christian. Because happiness is good. Happiness is right. But happiness is temporal. Happiness is fleeting. You can be happy one minute, and the next utter disaster, and you're overwhelmed by life. Happiness is never the goal. It is temporal. If God did not love us in order to show us discipline, in order to have something that would keep us going longer than just a moment, if he didn't love us, then he would not discipline us. There would be left, we would be left to our own sin. We would be unable to share in his godliness um, because we'd be cut off from Christ. And we wouldn't desire him, we wouldn't trust him, we wouldn't pray to him, and we would find no joy in him. Let me keep reading, because I failed to read these other two verses. God is treating you as sons, verse 7, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9, besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? How much more? See, God, he loves us because he disciplines us, and he disciplines us because he loves us. His discipline proves his love, and his love disciplines his, or his love demonstrates his discipline. I say that right? His discipline demonstrates his love and his love demonstrates his discipline. Follow me? But is a loving father only about the discipline? No. A loving father is not just about discipline. Never. But he is not, never anything less. He's never about anything less than that because that's destruction. Godly fatherhood is robust. It includes both the harsh discipline that might very well cause a child to despise his father in a moment. But it also includes the caring touch of a healing hand to draw the child back when he has fallen down. It is met with both. To fathers here this morning, um, I want to speak to you just real quick. Where, where are you at in your child's life? How does your child look to you? What do they perceive you as? So just quick 
statistics, and they're going to be on the screen. If you could throw those up. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. This is just America, uh, North America. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. On the inverse, though, next slide. Children with involved, loving fathers are significantly more likely to do well in school, have healthy self-esteem, exhibit empathy and pro-social behavior, avoid high-risk behaviors such as drug use, truancy, and criminal activity compared to children who have uninvolved fathers. Studies on parent-child relationships and child well-being show that father love is an important factor in predicting the social, emotional, and cognitive development and functioning of children and young adults. Fathers, you hold in your hand a powerful tool. With it is untold capability to build up a family with life. Not just your family, but generations to come after you. But held in the wrong hands, this same tool has untold capability of destroying your family. And for generations to come. It is our responsibility and our duty and our joy to raise our children in a manner that God raises you, that raises us, to emulate that for our kids. This is often hard. It will force you to the boundaries of your limits. It's not unknowable and it's not untainable. Are you disciplining your children with the same way that God disciplines you? Are your children aware of your love for them? Will they be? Ephesians 6.4 has some strong words to us as fathers. He says, do not provoke your children to anger or exasperate them. I like, I like that translation. Do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Do you know the discipline of the Lord well enough to be able to teach your children it? Have you developed a theology of discipline? And is it robust enough to mirror Scripture? May we walk in faithfulness before God and our kids in this manner. God, give us grace to do so. Verse 10. For they discipline, earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want to close today with three ways that God demonstrates a robust and rich fatherly discipline for us that I think are unpacked here in verses 10 and 11. One, God's love is rich and robust in his discipline because it is boundless. It is boundless. It is not um, confined to a limited understanding of just the present moment where often as fathers, as myself, I'll just confess that I respond to my son Desmond with just a momentary aggravation. God's love is not confined in such a manner. He is all-knowing of all things 
past, present, and future. God is not distracted by his emotions. He is not clouded by these momentary frustrations as if he would lash out in anger at you. He is calm in his righteous anger. And he sees clearly the principal issue at hand, which is sin. He's laser focused on it. He goes after it. He will kill it, destroy it at all costs. Theodore Leitch um, has a really, uh, some wise words here. He says, concerning, um, concerning God and his discipline, he says, His plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good, of blessing. Even if he is obliged to use the rod, it is the rod not of wrath, but the Father's rod of chastisement for their temporal and eternal wel- welfare. There is not a single item of evil in his plans for his people, neither in their motive, nor in their conception, nor in their revelation, and nor in their consummation. God is good to you through and through from the moment he even conceives of a plan for you until the very time where it is consummated and finished. On the day we arrive before him, there is never a motive of evil in his heart towards you. But we must recognize as earthly fathers and parents in general that we, we have these impure motives. But God is never that way. Second, his love is robust in his fatherly discipline because his discipline is generous to us. It says in verse, the later part of verse 10 that we may share in his holiness. What is more generous than for someone to share their whole selves with another person? This is why adoption is so fitting of a terminology and a description of us as sons and daughters. For someone to go and to say to this foreigner or even local or this stranger in general to say, come into my life, come into my home. Everything that I own is yours. Not just what I own, but what I feel and what I have inside of me is yours. These people over here, they are now your siblings and everything I feel to them, I feel for you. What is more generous than that? And how much more true is that for the God of the universe to bring us in to his family? God is generous in his discipline. He is not limited. He's not confined. He invites us to share all he has with Christ and he will actually work to that end. And lastly, his God's love is robust in his discipline. It is rich in discipline because it yields much fruit. It is lasting. That final verse. The moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but yet later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In Christ you have all that you need, both for the present and the future. And he offers you this. This is what you need. His peace by his righteousness. This word peace in the Hebrew is translated shalom. It not only means just a a feeling, a cognitive feeling of just, of, um, of rightness, but it is a wholeness embodied in all things. It is a wholeness of our whole spirituality. Isaiah 32, 17 describes it when he says, the prophet Isaiah, the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Richard John Newis says this, it means, peace means the bringing together of what was separated 
The picking up of the pieces, the healing of wounds, the fulfillment of the incomplete, the overcoming of the forces of fragmentation. Only a good, loving, and robust discipline could produce such a fruit like that. Only a good, robust, and rich discipline could yield such a harvest. Abiding in Jesus is the ultimate state of peace for us as Christians. It will be ours experience now, if we allow it to be. It will be ours into eternity. But it takes the kind, this kind and intentional, loving correction, prevention, and instruction of our Heavenly Father. Here and now, the trials will either distract us from focusing on Christ or they will intensify our focus on Christ. And we have to decide how we allow these things to actually operate us, right? Will they distract us from Christ or will we fix our eyes on Christ, run the race that is before us, looking to him, the author, the perfecter of our faith? He walked the road to Calvary. He did it faithfully. He did not waver. He did not flinch. But for joy set before him, he endured the cross. And you, in your present circumstances, you have what he offers you. God, through Christ, offers you his righteousness. And it is this righteousness that will never be stripped from you. It is yours now. It is yours tomorrow. It will be yours forever into eternity. And it is this righteousness that produces a peace. They say the whole world could crumble behind me and beneath me, but I am planted firmly here where I'm at because my God will never fail me. So my God, you may, you may ruin me. Though you slay me, I will not flinch because your love for me is endless. It is perfect. It is not confined to a moment. It is not limited by your understanding. It is lasting for all times. So I want to close with an examination. If we just quiet ourselves for a moment. Make sure I'm okay on time. I'm sorry guys, I went a little over. If we just ask a couple questions as a band sings these words over us. Right where you're at, right? First, most importantly, are you a child of God? And why do you answer the way you do? Christian, if you answer for any other reason then because God loves you despite you, he sent your son for you so that you might be righteous before him, then you need to re-examine your answer. Why are you a child of God? If you say, no, I don't think I could claim that today. Well, the opportunity is before you. The invitation is out extended to you. God says, come to me. Come to me. I'm, my, my burden is light, Jesus said. My yoke is easy. You can come to me if you're feeling burdened. I'll give you rest. I'll give it to you today. The invitation stands before you to come to the altar and to say, I take and communion's a perfect opportunity. Because in this act of communion, we demonstrate that we put our faith in Christ and his work and his finished work on the cross. So you come today, this may be your first act as a Christian, as a child of God, to say, I believe, I put my faith in you, Christ. I take this in faith. I believe that what you have done for me is right and true and lasting. And second question, where is God actively working his kind discipline in your life right now? Where is he actively working his kind discipline? 
What have you passed off as just an irritation in life? Like, this is, this, this sucks. I don't like this. You know, I wish it wouldn't be happening right now. And you're just passing it off as you're, you're thinking lightly of God's discipline. And he's trying to show you something in it. Where are you trying, or where are you passing it off? And God needs to deal with your heart. Where do you need to quit the woe is me mentality? And give yourself to God's good provision in the moment. What is he asking you to submit to? And what is he asking you to surrender your life to? Let me pray. The band's going to sing these words over us. Take a moment to do so. Then we're going to sing another song. We're going to be instructing in communion. We're going to finish out today. But I want to take a moment before we go any further and just examine based upon God's word today and what he's speaking to you. So Father, do what only you can do in your kindness and your love and your tenderness to your people, to your children. By your spirit, apply Christ's finished work to our hearts. My words are mere words, but your words are life. As we read the quote earlier, your speaking is your doing. So speak your word to our hearts today, I pray. And may we respond. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.